creeds and criticism meet. Split Frame of Reference podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And to discuss Jesus and uh, egalitarianism with us, we have a special guest, Mike Bird. Hi, yep. hi Mike. <laughs> hey, Mike. Hello. He is a New Testament scholar from Ridley College in Australia. Melbourne, Australia, as I'm told. <laughs> So, welcome, Mike. This has been a long time coming. Uh, we're very thankful that you agreed to be on our humble little podcast, which has only five or 15 reviews now on iTunes. So, welcome, a to, a, yeah, welcome to a 15-review podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be addressing the uh, dynamic duo and their cat. Yes, who's actually quite calm now. He was going a little nuts earlier, um, just doing cat things. Playing with his toys. Well, the, the Australian accent is very soothing to animals. <laughs> yes, he actually seemed to mild down. And he's also orange, so maybe he senses a kindred spirit and now is flexing his <laughs> paws with happiness right now. His name is also my, Barker. My hair is so. red, not orange. Ah, well, you know, as much as we can get with him, you know. He's still got This a... is an argument I have with my children. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're very glad to have you here, Mike. And Barkley, our cat, is, is staring at me woefully right now, insulted that I called him orange, so... We'll go on from there. Just a ginger kitty. Yes. So anyway, uh, so you come from an interesting background. I'm told you were born on a certain military base and have a certain lineage to certain uh, European scholars, I'm told. Yes, yes. I was born in Germany. My dad was serving in the British Army at the time. And I, tra- I can trace my doctoral lineage back to the great Bortmann. Woohoo! Man is, what is it? Man does not have Soma. Man is Soma is the famous Boltmanian dictum, I'm told. When I say Yeah, it sounds like something he'd say. Just add in a little bit of form criticism, Gnostic redeemer myth, and a Hellenistic community. It's probably something like that. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, great love for Boltman. And so you also, uh, I think, and I'm, correct me, of course, if I'm wrong, but you also come from, uh, you also served in the military. Is that correct? That is correct. I served as a paratrooper, military intelligence operator, and finally as a chaplain's assistant. Okay, so you went from Rambo to uh, basically the Bible Rambo Rambo, or the Passion of the Christ, whichever one you prefer. Yeah, yeah, Rambo. Maybe more like, you know, Jason Bourne meets Conan O'Brien. Maybe something a bit more like that. I'm not convinced Conan O'Brien doesn't have a bit of Jason Bourne in him. But so you come from... Well, no one's ever seen him in the same room, have they? No, this is true. Although the new Jason Bourne does not look at all like you know Conan, but that's a travesty we can avoid talking further about. Uh, so you come from a military background, and you wound up being one of the world's most awesome New Testament scholars, at least so far. And yet, you are now talking with us, presumably, about women in ministry. So what is your kind of journey from where you were to where you are now on that issue? Um, Well, I I was not always an egalitarian. Uh, My story is a little bit more complex. Um, I can go more biographical. Um, uh, Growing up, I did not have a great relationship with 
any woman. I did not have a particularly close relationship with my mother. Uh, I didn't relate well to um, females, uh, girls as a teenager. And, uh, yeah, so so when I became a Christian, I kind of took uh, very naturally to complementarianism. I should also add, when I joined the army as a 17-year-old, Basically, the, uh, the ethos I was taught by my peers could be summed up with a quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, <laughs> which is, man shall be trained for war and the woman for the recreation of the warrior. All else is folly. So that's the sort of... How does that go for you? Jeez. <laughs> well, th- th- those were the that's sort cool. of, you know, uh, th- that was the sort of um, influences I had upon me in my, in my late adolescence. <laughs> As you can imagine, it was not a recipe for a very... Uh, wholesome or well-rounded human being who was ready to have mature and um, uh, careful relationships with women or anything like that. Uh, yeah, but I became a Christian and I, I took to complementarianism very uh, naturally and easily. And it was going fairly well, but then I kept getting problems with reading the Bible. Like I knew what 1 Timothy 2 said, you know, and, you know, Adam was born first, order of creation, but all these women kept popping up around the New Testament and they were kind of like doing stuff, (laughs) Uh, like, like ministry stuff. And I couldn't figure it out until I realized the problem was not the stuff the women were doing. The problem is the way I was interpreting 1 Timothy 2. Mm. So, yeah, I sort of gradually, um, uh, I mean, just you know, through reading things like Romans 16 and, and things like that, I, I came to a, a more egalitarian view of women. And for those interested, I have since uh, married and even have daughters, and I uh, now enjoy very uh, good relationships with the females in my life. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I had a very similar upbringing. Of course, I wasn't a Rambo. I was a Calvin and Hobbes, or at least I was a Calvin in the Calvin and Hobbes universe. Yep. So uh, the kind of kid that would run around talking to stuffed animals. And my mother did not have me tested, but I assure you, I am mostly sane. And I was not an adolescent young male. No, you were not. Um, thank God for that. <clears throat> but there was a sense in which I inherited a very similar outlook on these sorts of things. I was always terrified of girls. I didn't have a girlfriend until undergrad, basically, because I was terrified of, yep. of women. And so I, I first I re- and last. Yep, hopefully. yep. And it was for me. It wasn't necessarily women in the New Testament. It was reading the story of Deborah that kind of caused me to go, "Well, she's doing stuff. That stuff doesn't work very well with my preconceived paradigm of how I read scripture." And so it was interesting, yeah. just women are kind of like, women in the Bible are kind of like the pebble in our shoe, just kind of like, well, something's just not right about the way I'm walking on this current path. So it's kind of cool to yeah. hear your story about that. Well, my problem is all the women I knew were mean to me, but they all kind of, but, but some of them still kind of um, smelt nice and they, they, um, yeah, they were, they were peculiarly interesting, even in a kind of like mean derogatory way. Um, <laughs> That's probably a little bit too much personal information. Um, <laughs> no, no, I, I felt I felt yeah, but, uh, the same way. Yeah, I, but, uh, I was, yeah just uh, reading the New Testament for me was um, was very transformative, uh, particularly things like Romans sixteen, and you know just looking at the Pauline ministry networks, women in the life of Jesus, and women in the Old Testament too. Yeah, and it's it's just kind of cool what, to see. Uh, I, I would say the power of Scripture and kind of and and, and Scripture, I would say, or rather the Holy Spirit's way of kind of throwing little pebbles into our shoes and kind of forcing us to kind of read scripture as, you know, 
as Christians, but also as people committed to a certain ethical standard and in, in how we engage with one another. And so uh, we were thinking... Um, so that kind of, so reading Romans 16 and all these other aspects of the New Testament is kind of what led you to be more egalitarian. Was there kind of a, a final, as you might say, a tipping point where it's like you move from you know A to B, so to speak, or you kind of jump the uh, the shark or the fence, so to speak? Um, no, it was it was a, it was a gradual process, um, but once once you accept that women had a role in the early church, at the role of household leader. Uh, like I think you find with Chloe in mm. Corinth and Nympha in uh, uh, Colossae, or maybe it's Laodicea. Uh, once you once you get to that point, you've really got to move some mental furniture around in your head uh, in, in order to, to to figure out what's going on, and it becomes irreconcilable um, in in many ways with a very strict, rigorous complementarian. I mean, there's a, there's a whole sort of scale of being complementarian. Uh, I guess, but once you accept that women can preach and hold authority in the church, even as a sole leader, uh, then you, you can't you can't really hold to a, a more vigorous complementarianism. And at what time did you make that switch? And was there any pushback? Oh, about seven o'clock this morning. <laughs> uh, no, I'm joking. Um, oh, I think several years ago for me. Um, yeah, there was. I had certain. Um, I've got certain friends who were obviously very disappointed that I took that kind of um, track. Uh, I wouldn't say I've lost any uh, friends over it, uh, but some were a little bit frustrated, uh, you know, worrying this is a slippery slope to um, something else. But, but, uh, but I'm very, very comfortable in it, and for me it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not a compromise of biblical authority or biblical teaching. It's, 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 it's embracing it. Yeah. Amen. Amen to that. All right, so let's go ahead and launch into the meat of the podcast. Um, so, Jesus and the Gospels. I hear you're an expert on that. Oh, well, that will depend who you ask. Um, <laughs> As always. Uh, not, some, people, some people like what I do on the Gospels. Um, other people uh, don't like Also, it depends on which aspect of the Gospels, you know, Christology or synoptic problem or origins, that type of thing, but I, I tend to spend a lot of time hanging out with Jesus in the Gospels. It's a pretty cool area to hang out. All the cool kids are doing it. I mean, you know, you know, Paul rocks, but Jesus reigns, right? <laughs> That's my motto. That's my motto. Yeah, and I heard that some of um, your reading of the Gospels in particular kind of helped lead you to become egalitarian. What are some of those aspects? Oh, well, several things. Like, the first people to... Uh, proclaim the resurrection of Jesus were women. The first people to worship the risen Jesus were women. Uh, if you read Luke 8, Jesus was supported in his ministry uh, by uh, a certain circle of female supporters who, who came to have certain prominence, I think, within the Jesus movement uh, as well. And Jesus also had, a, I think, a very a affirming attitude towards women, uh, at one level, certainly as supplicants of healing, uh, but he also had a, a close relationship with a number of women, like like Mary Magdalene, uh, and uh, you know several other women amongst his disciples. Okay, yeah. Speaking of disciples, um, a lot of people appealed to only um, only men were part of, for instance, the twelve disciples or twelve apostles. Yeah, I mean, that's like saying they were also only Jewish, and therefore yeah. only Jews should be elders of churches. 
uh, I think it, you're drawing on a pretty sort of narrow um, uh, gene pool if you go for something like that. Uh, look, at the one hand, we uh, you know, we have to remember that Jesus is not a 21st century inner city hipster <laughs> um, sprouting all the sort of values of a progressive or inclusive sort of Christianity. I mean, he is a first century prophet, rabbi, messiah, uh, Aramaic-speaking, brown-skinned guy. And he's certainly ministering and operating in the cultural world and context. And you can't, he was not simply walking around with a hashtag saying, um, uh, me too, or something like that. He, he did not come along as a feminist revolutionary or anything along those lines. But within that context, he was very open, very inclusive of women, certainly in the sense of supplicants, uh, supplicants of healing. He helped women who were in grave need, who were vulnerable, who are ostracized by their community. And he did in a way that was, was quite radical, quite affronting, and left certain accusations or questions of impropriety amongst the people around him. So Jesus wasn't afraid to be a little bit more uh, provocative and, and, and open to him in, in a way that did rub against some of the scruples. But at the same time, we do have to accept the fact that he did live and operate in what was a patriarchal society. Mm. Hmm. No, exactly. But what I found interesting in rereading the Gospels uh, fairly recently with kind of this, these questions in mind, what I found very interesting is that a lot of the women seem to kind of intuitively kind of come to Jesus, you know, the woman who of I forget the exact title, but the woman who had been uh, bleeding for seven years seems to just know who Jesus is and comes to him. And it, yes. it seems that the women, uh, at least in the way... They get him. Yeah, they, they get him. They get who this guy is, which, you know, of course, tells a, a great tale of early Christology that these women got the joke. You know, they were in on, you know, the secret of this, but also that they knew that this is the one who could heal them or bring them liberation from, from their afflictions. And I think that's a great testament, one, to the virtue of, and valor of women, but also of who Jesus, how Jesus revealed himself and how people responded to him, which I think is very fascinating. It has a lot of implications for Christology. Oh, it does. It does. And it's certainly uh, the case that uh, w women become very much models of faith mm. and discipleship in the gospel. Certainly in, in the gospel of Mark, that's true. I mean, you've got that great story of the Syrophoenician who seems to engage in a battle of wits with Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And I think Jesus kind of invites her witty reply. And uh, I, mean, I, I, don't want, I wouldn't go so far as to say she gets one over Jesus, but Jesus kind of invites her uh, reply, uh, whereby it would be uh, incumbent upon him to answer her request. And certainly when it comes to the women uh, or the disciples who are with Jesus to the end, that is the women. It's the women who go to the cross. All the disciples scatter and flee. It's the women who go to the empty tomb. Yeah. So women are very much positive models of, of discipleship. I mean, one of the things that really frustrates me in our extant uh, culture, and this is true in Australia, it's true in America, there seems to be this idea that Christianity is inherently anti-women and it's pro-slavery. Yeah. So, and that's, that's their impression. And so they think of Christianity through the lens of the antebellum South. Uh, they think of it also through the ends of sort of patriarchy. But the really weird, ironic thing is, out of all the reasons the Romans hated Christians is because they considered Christianity to be the religion of slaves and women. Okay, it was an effeminate, servile religion. And if you read some of the early polemics about Christians in Celsus and Porphyry and, and, and others, this is the criticism they keep raising. It, it's the religion of women 
and slaves. That's why the Romans looked down on it. Uh, and yet, uh, people talk today as if Christianity is somehow anti-women and it's pro-slavery uh, itself, which uh, indicates two things. First of all, how Christianity, I think, changed in, in certain parts of the world to become that, but also shows an ignorance of what the early church really was, what it's about, and who its members were largely comprised of. Not unlike modern-day churches. I mean, SPC churches are basically run by women. So it's it's not yeah. like that. So yeah, you will uh, you will never know the meaning of wrath until you change the flowers at the front of the church <laughs> without consulting with anyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the quickest the quickest way for any pastor to get fired is to say, hey, instead of having real flowers, let's just switch to plastic. Oh, that believe is the me, I'm quickest not way to get fired. <laughs> yeah, that's the quickest way to get fired. Now, I'm not being stereotypical here by saying women are just into the flowers. Uh, but that is, uh, I think, a symbolic issue of how uh, women uh, can, even through the background, often be running through uh, yes. things to despite appearances to the contrary. Yeah, and we get kind of pigeonholed into certain roles or um, things that we have um, control over or not. And so I think that also influences what areas kind of get flexed more than others. Children's ministry, basically. Yeah, it's one of those things, too, where, like, as a woman, and I, frankly, really like children quite a bit, I had to actually try to separate myself from helping out in childcare because mm. I could easily get pigeonholed in that area and not be able to minister yeah. anywhere else, period. But, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, back that, to the, that is, yeah. Back that to is, the, that is the danger of churches where they just assume there's a, a, yeah. a children's ministry to grab the nearest woman. Yeah. And, uh, use something like that. So obviously, you know, you, you were born with the inherent ability to do this or something, yeah. Well, and I mean, frankly, I was pretty good at it, so, you know, and I enjoyed it, and I love children, so, you know, there's that too. So it's sometimes um, just having lots of gifting, perhaps, just getting pigeonholed into one area versus other places that I could contribute as well. Um, but back to, I was curious to get your thoughts on maybe some of the Mary and Martha dynamic, especially with, um, Mary kind of learning at Jesus's feet. Like, how do you, do you see any like significance there in terms of, um, how Jesus treated women versus expectations? Yeah, I mean, Jesus seems to be very much open to teaching men and women. I mean, that, that, that whole Mary Martha episode has been a real, uh, played around for feminists. I mean, is is you know, the evangelist Luke saying, you know, what Jesus really wants is for women to be taught, uh, not just serving, or is some of the alleged what Luke wants is women to sit down, shut up, and be told a whole bunch of stuff where they don't then actually do anything. Hmm. So there's been some very curious uh, feminist interpretations of um, of that story in uh in, in Luke, I t tend to think what, it, what is going on there is that you know you, you you have the sort of genuine busyness of life and the importance of m moving away from that and just sitting at the feet of the Lord while He's still there, which is I think a, a good idea for anyone, irrespective of whether you're male or female. Yeah, and I tend to think too, in terms of discipleship, um, a well-bred student would sit quietly at the feet of Jesus and listen. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely right. I mean, I, I get a little bit concerned when my students are quiet because it usually means they're texting or checking Twitter. <laughs> yeah, and what I find in addition to that too is is Paul seems to echo Jesus's view of women learning. You know, even in the so-called pastoral epistles, some of the most quote you know 
what's the word, prohibitory or exclusive view of women, even then Paul gives the imperative for women to learn and all these other things. And so even in a context of so-called subordination, which I would dispute in 1 Timothy, it's whole, the whole thing is prefaced with the assumption that women are to indeed learn. And I don't think that means learning how to put the tea in the kettle. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, even if you're a complementarian, you, you probably uh, want some, uh, you probably want the women to be educated, well-informed, theologically formed, spiritually formed as well, uh, because, you know, women are, I mean, 50% of the church, they're going to be doing a lot of the ministries, uh, not just pastoral ministry, but any sort of, of ministry. And, yes, I, I think it's, it, it, you definitely want to have them, um, a good sort of, you know, lay education system going on that's inclusive of men and women, since, you know, the, the whole work of the church is done by the whole body. I sense a lot of, and I, I don't know how, what you pick up on, I sense a lot of angst, maybe among complementarians, in terms of um, what women might do with theological knowledge. It's like they want us to be knowledgeable, but in kind of more of a muted way. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, well, I think, I think it, it depends. Um, I have to say, virtually all the complementarians I know are very happy for women to be uh, trained, informed, you know, to go to seminary, theological college. Uh, it's what they then do after yeah. with it that causes sort of, you know, the the tension or the angst. Uh, yeah, I, I do, on the one hand, uh, wonder about certain seminaries which are very happy to accept uh, tuition fees from female students uh, and to instruct them, teach them, you know, even give them academic awards, that type of a thing, uh, but then seem to spend a little bit of time making sure these women leave knowing all the things they should not be should not be doing with this theological knowledge. You know, which 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 makes me wonder. I mean, if you're if you're going to you know uh, accept money, invest yourself in these women, then it's 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 a little bit inconsistent to then sort of uh, worry or uh, I might say I might say harass, uh, but to uh, lecture them or, or pester them. Sometimes uh, harass. What they, what they, <laughs> Sometimes harass. Frankly, um, not. Um, not, I would say not most, but I would say some very vocal, um, few, um, well, not only that too, it's like, here are the keys to the car, but don't you start driving. And so it's kind of one of those things where it's like, really? Like, is this the kind of thing, you know, you get, I think you hit it on the head. We're willing to take your money, but we really don't want you to. Well, I, I wonder if it's more than that. I, I tend to think there's actually a conflict in values here, perhaps. Um, I think um, in a lot of people's hearts of hearts, they have this value that, yes, women should have access to education, um, that theology is highly, is very important, and that women should be involved too. Um, and so I think, I think also many, especially in the West, have an understanding that women they want to say women are equal. And so there's all these things that come with being equal in terms of personhood. But then I think their theology oftentimes simultaneously undermines those same values. And so I think they're trying to work with um, these things that are in tension. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen um, situations uh, which were a little bit, uh, I think, somewhere between problematic and disturbing where a a complementarian seminary, part of a complementarian denomination, has hired a female, on the one hand, to, to have sort of pastoral oversight 
and to be an encourager of the female students, which I think is very good and noble. So, you know, golfers clap within the uh, for doing that within the complementary framework. But then the female faculty member, so, you know, the female, you know, dean of female students or something like that, uh, keeps getting reprimanded when, when it's found out that all these female graduates are going into uh, ministry positions or they end up turning egalitarian or they become coming like a senior pastor of some church uh, within the country and, and that the, the seminary or the leadership then blames this single female faculty uh, member for not kind of, you know, uh, discouraging these women from doing that sort of thing. So I've seen, I have heard of a few uh, awkward or I think unfair situations like that emerging. I mean, those obviously extreme cases yeah. But yeah, that, that's that's the whole thing. I mean, I, at one level, I, I I think it's a lot more consistent for a complementarian seminary who says they're training pastors to only uh, train men. Uh, I mean, even though, even though I disagree, I think yeah. there's a lot more logical consistency to that, and there's a lot more coherence to that. Whereas in other places, I, I think there is there is a kind of I mean, it's not absolute, but there can be a, a danger of sending. Mixed missile, uh, mixed, sorry, mixed missiles, <laughs> mixed messages. Whereby we want you to be trained, but we also want to train you in all the things that we think you should not be doing. Yeah. Uh, or like, yeah, his, like you know, now that you know, now that you know how to drive a spaceship, uh, please don't. Uh, which is uh, <laughs> which is it can be a little bit yeah, a little bit mixed messagey. I think would don't be a more gracious. <laughs> Yeah, it, as a student in like one of those contexts at one point, um, we had our own, um, it, I, honestly, I found it a little insulting and I wasn't actually, let's just say being at the seminary pushed me into becoming more prominent of an egalitarian. Um, it was something I loosely got like, you know, okay, yeah, I guess academically I agree with that um, back when I was at Biola taking Ron Pierce's class. But once I went to the seminary, um, Man, <laughs> it pushed me into it. Um, but one of the couple of the oddities, um, we had our own female academic dean, and it was just very awkward. It seemed like a lot of my experience there was to try to separate me out. And um, as someone who is already in a minority there as a woman, um, it, it was just very strange having my own. It, it seemed a little patronizing. Um, actually, and it seemed kind of like we were, um, I guess it's kind of like how in principle that like segregation was supposed to be kind of separate but equal in their own ways, <laughs> except it, it felt a bit like maybe we were the odd ones out that didn't quite belong. And it was this strange thing where officially they weren't supposed to be the dean of women, but they were. Um, and so we would have our separate meetings away from all our other classmates, um, because we had supposedly fundamentally different concerns somehow. Um, so that was a little awkward, honestly. Um, and then there were other oddities too. Like I remember I was, and, and maybe this gets into some of the inconsistency here, where I was in an, a, a ministerial formation as part of being an MDiv student. And yet it was very abundantly clear that I um, was not allowed to think uh, think too far ahead in terms of what I might do with the things I was learning in that. Uh, 
context. No, yep, I can see. Yeah, but I mean, there's a, the whole separation thing, there is a, there's a pro and a con to that. On the one hand, you want to treat female students as you would a male student, you know, allow them to voice their opinion and that sort of thing. But there, there can be other occasions where I think um, segregation of the sexes uh, might actually be a good idea. Um, for example, at, at, a, at, at you know my college, we, we recently had a discussion on the issue of pornography mm. uh, and how that can affect sure. people in ministry. Uh, we had someone even give a, a bit of a, a testimony to that type of thing, and we, we found that very helpful to um, segregate that because um, you know men do not want to talk about pornography or problems with pornography in front of female students and even female students I think would be um, you know the, the same way as well so I mean there, yeah, it's the, 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 the segregating thing I think it depends on the issue um, the topic the purpose what class you're taking and what you're getting out of it I do know some women who do who, who feel a little bit intimidated by their male peers because sometimes males can be a little bit um, uh, a little bit more pushy and they feel like every time they talk, they're kind of, you know, talked down to. So, so I know some women oh, who yeah. do prefer sort of female, yeah, who, yeah, who prefer sort of groups like that. And I, I know others who think, you know, well, bring it on. I am not, I'm not afraid to go mano a mano uh, with any with any male. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think there's a place for both. But certainly I can understand that, well, I mean, separating women, well, you're going to do some sort of ministry of flower arranging or being a That's children's partner or a women's past. So we're going to put you over there because you're, you're doing those sorts of ministry. But everyone over here doing pastoral ministry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think that would be that would be difficult. Yeah, honestly, I didn't have any problems in my PhD courses here at Fuller because more or less I was treated like a peer. And so, yeah. you know, they could, they could dish it at me and I could dish it at them and it was all good. Um, but where I saw a lot more women and even myself starting to like stutter and have other behaviors that we usually didn't have was frankly being um, pounded into the ground over and over again for normal behaviors that would not be done for other people. So, for okay. instance... Like, like what? Can you give me an example? Yeah, so for instance, being mildly assertive um, or finding that you're suddenly, um, you're voicing an opinion and... Um, everyone's going to just ignore you and pretend you didn't speak. So there, let's just say there's a lot of very strange behaviors that oftentimes women get, I would say, targeted for that wouldn't happen yeah. with male peers. And I, I tend to have mixed thoughts on that. Um, on the one hand, I tend to be a lot more assertive and say, bring it. But at the other hand, I know what it's like to be um, harassed and I would say even um, abused in other contexts. And that does do a number on anyone's psyche. Um, I would say even women that have to face that over and over and over again. And I would encourage any women out there, um, you kind of do have to get the attitude of bring it on, and you have to get the idea if you're going to get knocked down, you're going to just keep getting back up and say, yeah, I might stutter here and there, but I'll get, I'll get over it eventually. And it's just an unfortunate thing where I would say it's a both and, where you do need to keep women in the mainstream you do not need. I, I think very, there are few, very few instances where they should be segregated off. Um, and I'd say um, porn discussions <laughs> might be one of those. Um, although I've had actually quite frank discussions with a lot of dudes over that were actually struggling with porn. Um, but at the same time, I think in terms of, I think a lot of men would rather discuss that away from women 
And um, women, I think most women would want to discuss things um, like sexual assault and maybe their own porn addictions away from men. But I think those yeah. are kind of more limited things that won't intersect um, most of the time with seminary and I would say even like PhD education. Yeah. And it, it also comes down to a, a few things, uh, like like what type of pedagogic, pedagogical culture you have in the classroom. Mm. Uh, you want to have uh, you know a, an environment where everyone feels free to speak, to ask questions, to voice their opinion uh, without being talked down to because of you know their gender, because of their you know, denomination, mm. uh, you know, because of their accent or culture or whatever, and that, that it comes to the at one level, the, the sort of the pedagogical culture you create as a uh, as a teacher, and then at the seminary level, I think I think it also helps if you have if you have a mixed faculty yeah. of men women. So yes. um, men are exposed to being lectured by women, and you know women by men, and what have so. Yeah. And I, I think I think that does uh, that brings us a steady diet of um, of being exposed to different teaching methods, different teaching philosophies. And, you know, and being taught by uh, different people. More often than not, and I think you in most classes I've taught, you, you tend to get two or three personalities who just want to dominate every conversation in uh, And they're, they're, they're normally happy to, to dominate anyone irrespective of gender or, or the like. They just don't want to, they just want to you know, dominate with their opinion or the, or the power of their personality. Yeah, and they'll usually go after um, people that have um, lower status regardless. And frankly, women get targeted the most because um, they're already having to climb upwards where men aren't necessarily. Uh, but I, I was curious, um, since, since we have you here, um, what do you think about some of, I know um, a lot of people appeal to Genesis as kind of um, the universal principle of uh, gender complementarity defined in hierarchical terms. Um, how do you, how does Jesus interpret um, Genesis and how do, does this lend more towards that kind of hierarchical view or do you think more towards egalitarianism? Uh, well, I'm not too sure Jesus explicitly addresses that question at any point in his ministry. He affirms, you know, there's an Adam and Eve, uh, and you know, and that's that was God's intention. You know, man and women, are, man and woman are made for each other. That sort of thing. Uh, I don't think I don't think there's any sort of um, issue of treating uh, Genesis one as a hierarchy and therefore normative. Or anything like that. So uh, I'm not. I'm not sure we can find a lot in the Gospels that, that's going to answer that specific question. What Jesus does affirm uh, is the importance and the value of men and women, and you see that in the way he treats them. Specifically, in, in relation to that, uh, I, I wonder because uh, because I think of the issue of Jesus and say divorce, which of course is a a touchy topic these mm -hmm. days. Um, no matter you know what side of the aisle you are, but the way Jesus kind of addresses divorce, um, and you can of course correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, the whole idea of uh, divorce is given as a, or rather Moses gave it to you on account of your hardness of heart, but from the beginning, of course, it was not so, and so Jesus, in a nice little display of Christology, basically says, yes, Moses did say this, but I say, and so it's not an emendation yes. of the law per se. It's rather I'm taking you back to the original. The, uh, the the originalist, as you might say, view of, of this. So do you think Jesus' uh, interaction on divorce uh, lends itself to his uh, honoring view of women as well? 
Yeah, I think a lot of Jesus's ethics are, are what you could call uh, Erdzeit and Inzeit, and that is the future will be as the beginning. So, like a, a kind of a going back to Eden. So, as he says in the beginning, God made them male and female. So that is the divine purpose, okay, to be male and female. However, because of the reality of human behavior, we live in a fallen and broken world with with broken and fallen people. Sometimes relationships don't work out and things like divorce happens. I think Jesus's point is that is not the ideal, that was the exception. And what is more in the, you know, in the in the uh, the way God's people are to live, that to live more like the the way it was, the ideal, which is male and female in lifelong partnership. So what Jesus does is he points out in this case that eschatology or the arrival of the kingdom actually trumps certain aspects of the law. Hmm. Well, that's at least my understanding of uh, what Jesus says there about uh, about divorce. Uh, Dale Allison has a very, very good um essay on this in his book resurrecting jesus mm. where he talks about how eschatology is one of the driving things in jesus's ethic and that's what i think really uh propels jesus in the stance that he takes not because he's soft on um on some aspects of the law and he's harder than others but because his idea of the kingdom now and not yet is what really shapes it as ethics as it applies to male and female and that's also on top of the fact that in the ancient world um, largely it was women, it was men who divorced women um, you know because they could get a, a you know a better younger deal or this wife you know had not produced a heir so I'll get rid of her find another one or well I'm having a new business relationship so I'll ditch my wife and buy my you know new mate you know or marry my new mate's daughter or something like that yeah. so divorce and divorce then left women um, sort of you know vulnerable uh, exploited really and that things. type of yeah yeah, exactly. So, uh, so di- divorcing uh, women was usually bad, bad for the wo- the, uh, the women. Obviously, it depends on the various cases. Uh, but in the in the very least, Jesus says, you know, this this was this was never the ideal. This was the exception. And with the coming of the kingdom, uh, the the exception is going to be uh, uh, removed or obviated at least. In, in relation to the, the 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 idea of the kingdom and the kind of the apocalyptic. Eminence, there I used it as an adjective, correctly, <laughs> as it should be. Uh, <laughs> uh, my final question that I kind of had is uh, the idea that uh, many complementarians, at least the ones I know, Jesus came as male, therefore male headship is kind of this universal paradigm. And so what has always struck me is T.F. Torrance's argument, although I don't know if it originated with him, was the idea of the Logos becoming Sartre or becoming flesh and dwelling among us. And it seems to me, and I could of course be wrong, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is that Jesus is, the way the Gospels, Synoptics, and uh, the Gospel of John depict or talk about Jesus in terms, the emphasis, of course, seems to be on the more inclusive use of anthropos versus something like male, like on error, or something like that. Do you think there's significance to the idea of, and so, for example, to give a little more context, I suppose, Mary Daly talks about a male savior can only save the male person, right? So kind of the the, feminist, yep. the, 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 the logic that in. But if we take, you know, Jesus, the, the prologue of the Gospel of John seriously, and I think we should as, as theologians, the idea being that Jesus as the Logos, the one who becomes enfleshed and dwells or tabernacles among us, seems to be a direct response to the idea that a male savior cannot save whoever 
well, he darn well pleases. So what are your thoughts on kind of the, the gender of Jesus himself in relation to uh, incarnation and, uh, and uh, the relationship between male and female? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. It also relates to the issue of Bible translation. Mm. The passage I go to when I discuss this, I go to Hebrews chapter 2, which says Jesus was made every way uh, like his Adelphoi. Uh, so do you say he was made every way like his brothers, or do you go for a gender-inclusive translation and say he was made every way like his brothers and sisters? Mm. So that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a cute little sort of translation uh, because Jesus, you know, was he made like his brothers or was he made like his brothers and sisters? Now, I prefer the translation. He was made like his brothers and sisters uh, because I think Jesus' uh, humanity uh, is real and representative. Now, I'll take issue with Mary Daly where she says only a, a, yeah. a male saviour yeah. can only save males. Uh, well, then what about people who are intersex? Does Jesus have to be, uh, can only an, can an, only an intersex saviour uh, save people who are intersex? Yeah. And what about us redheads? We are a very, <laughs> very small minority. We are far more precarious. What about redhead rights? Uh, you know, us gingers, d d does Jesus need to have Sorry. red hair? Does Jesus need to have red hair? Does he have, Does he need? Can a um, Middle Eastern Jesus only save Middle Eastern people? Well, actually, does he have actually, to be no, Chinese? Actually, Jesus could not have been a redhead because, therefore, we cannot affirm the uh, the ancient creeds where Jesus is both God and man. And you know, Jesus didn't have a soul; he can't be both God and man. So, I mean, that's you're <laughs> oh just kind of you're just kind of you know out on the luck there. But you know, we'll tip one out to you in heaven, of course. You know, but I was going to say, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Jesus I does not have to marginalized. Yeah, so Jesus does not have to. Yeah, but Jesus does not have to participate in every single different part of diverse humanity in order to be the redeemer. He doesn't have to be a green-eyed, red-haired Asian in order to save green, green-eyed, red-haired Asians or, or something along those lines. His his humanity is real and representative of all humanity in all of its diversity in in gender, sex, race, ethnicity, and even. Ableness. Yeah, and I never took, I mean, I, I felt the force of Mary Daly's argument, at least early on, but then I realized I worship a, or we worship a Jewish Messiah, and as someone who's not Jewish, boy, I sure hope, I sure hope this Jewish Messiah can save, you know, what, am I Scottish, English, well, uh, this pasty I've white guy, Jewish like, you know, this, I hope, I'm covered, I hope sorta. It, yeah, I hope this Jewish Savior can save this pasty white guy, you know, who's got really curly well, hair. Me, me, me. Mary Daly is simply trying to prosecute what on the one hand is a legitimate point. What is not assumed cannot be redeemed. Mm. If Jesus is not fully human, he cannot fully save us. That's the point. But then she's then sort of uh, pushing it to a point of absurdity that a male Jesus can only save males. But then you've also got the problem that, well, does he, does he save? Does he save Asians? Does he save Caucasians? Does he save um, Africans or, you know, uh, or, or people of a, a, a mixed um, ethnic background? background so it, it, it does it does become absurd at one point well it's also messing with ontological and accidental like properties so i don't know that it depends on one's philosophy in terms of how one categorizes gender as well yeah it's also the scandal of particularity yeah. you know jesus did not uh, jesus uh, was not some sort of uh bizarre humanoid who was a hybrid of every single sex and gender and human attribute that we can imagine. No, he, he came as a, you know, uh, Galilean male. 
And uh, what is even more scandalous is that when he ascended, that's the humanity that he took with him to heaven. And I tell Christians that if you don't like brown-skinned people from the Middle East, I've got some bad news for you because you're currently worshipping one. When Jesus ascends to heaven, he has a glorified incarnate body, but he is still, he is still the, the Galilean uh, man, the brown-skinned Aramaic-speaking man, and, uh, as he, he was in his life. Because a, a, big, a big axiom of Christology is that the one who is the exalted kurios, you know, at the Father's right hand, is the same one who, was, uh, who walked around Nazareth and Galilee and Judea and was crucified. It is the same person and the same humanity. Uh, yes, he's been resurrected and, and glorified, but he still has scars on his hands. He is still, dare I say, a circumcised Jewish male. Uh, who was at the helm of the universe. And that's really got to shape uh, what we think about uh, anthropology, our doctrine of, of humanity, of worship, uh, and that sort of a thing. Yeah. So I think there's going to be a few people that try to murder us if we don't ask you this. Um, we get this question actually quite frequently. Um, there's some people that think that perhaps Priscilla wrote Hebrews. Um, we don't see much evidence one way or another. Um, do you have any thoughts on this? Uh, well, no, no strong conviction. Uh, it would be great if she did. Uh, but the only thing we can say about who wrote Hebrews, I think, is that it was not written by Paul. Uh, <laughs> after that, um, the Lord, only the Lord knows. Yeah, yeah. And so the final question, and this is the one this has all been building to, is yeah. why... Do you, Michael Bird, Dr. Michael Bird, I should say, uh -oh. refuse to drink the nectar of the gods and pursuing the perfection that is kofefe, the coffee, the thing that God gives to us, that nurtures us, I'm pretty certain makes us more holy. I'm, as a good Wesleyan, I think... I become more of a tea person. I'm personally. pretty certain coffee makes us fully sanctified. I'm pretty certain that's what John Wesley was getting at. So why do you prefer not coffee? Because there can be no other category nope, except not, not coffee. coffee. Not Jeez. coffee. Okay. We just got back when from got, going to a tea house, English tea house. And I am very sore about that. Okay, well, I have to say this. I believe coffee is a consequence of the fall. Uh, it brings people in slavery to the bean. So you are, you are, Nick, you are a bean slave, and brother, thou art loose, because the good news of Jesus can set you free from your coffee addiction. Uh, you don't need caffeine to get up in the morning. What you need is a face full of cold water, uh, a good exercise, maybe a nice five jog mile, sorry, five uh, mile jog, and you will be energetic and sprightly in the morning like an 18-year-old Olympic athlete. You don't need that dreaded coffee stuff. I mean, I hate coffee. I mean, I cannot... I cannot undersell how much I despise coffee. Right. I, I, I hate co my feelings about coffee are very similar to how Nancy Pelosi feels about Donald Trump. I just cannot stand the taste. I cannot stand the smell. I will not even kiss my wife after she's had coffee. I really don't like coffee, and I cannot understand why anyone 
would want to smell it, taste it, drink it, or put it into their body. It is a mystery. But, but brother, you, you, need, you need to be free. You need to be emancipated oh from the bean because the bean, I think, is, is something created from the armpits of Satan himself or his armpits if you're lucky. So you need to be free from it, brother. Okay, final final thought, because this could go on for a very long time, and I'm restraining oh my myself. Satan is restraining me. Uh, if you are on a desert island, and you can, and the ocean has turned into coffee and dark beer, and you cannot drink anything else, and God will not let you die, like the book of Revelation, you will wish to die, but you won't be unable to do so. So how do you want to be tortured? So basically, yes. So if you're uh, stuck with coffee or dark beer... Or Johnny Walker Black. Uh, we'll okay. say, yes, and and, I'm, I, and God is basically saying, no, you have to pick one in order to come to heaven. Johnny Walker Black can be in there too. Uh, I'll, I'll okay, allow it um, in this experiment. I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of dark beer, but my dislike of dark beer pales into insignificance compared with my hor abhorrence to coffee. So I would definitely go for the dark beer. And just get uh, just get used to it. However, Nick, I have to say, I worship a merciful God who is kind and abounding in mercy, and I'm sure He's more likely to give me Australian tea or maybe even a nice Australian bottle of Pinot Noir. What about a nice whiskey? Uh, I think whiskey tastes what like I imagine horse urine metho tastes <laughs> like. So I can't I can't really do whiskey either okay i've tried i tried there's some very good whiskies in scotland when i was there but all i could think about is i wonder how they got the horse to stand still while they got the whiskey out that's very sad to hear yes i'm sorry well this has been a wonderful conversation i still feel the chains of coffee on me but as with all creation i groan for the adoption out of coffee but as i am i am still that roman sevens man so uh, any parting thoughts mike uh, no, I just want to thank you guys for the good work you do. And uh, I can, if I could uh, tell some of your listeners, maybe those in Australia, that Ridley College is having a conference called Finding Her Voice, which mm -hmm. is about evangelical women in academia. And it's on the 28th of July. And we've got Katja Kovret from Zondervan and mm -hmm. Katie Smith from the Church Ministry Society. So if you've got any listeners who want to come down to Australia where the Vegemite is fresh and the <laughs> kangaroo roams free, or if you've got any listeners already in Australia, they should definitely come to that conference at the end of July at Ridley. Awesome. Well, also, there are some books that Mike, Dr. Bird, has done. Your Evangelical Theology is sitting on my office at the church I am associate pastor at, so thank you for that book. And your commentary on Romans is in the mail. For some reason, it's not arrived yet. So you have written some pretty awesome books, especially on the Synoptic Gospels and all these sorts of things. So we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy you're ahead of us now. You're Sunday afternoon, as it were. So thank you, uh, Mike. This has been a pleasure for both of us. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Uh, no worries. Allison and Rick, thank you very much for having me. Thank you.